Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello, and thanks for downloading Babbage from The Economist, our weekly take on science and technology. Today on the podcast, how scientists are harnessing microbes to make our pearly whites even whiter. It will actually leave a sort of vacant ecological niche in the mouth, which will be filled by very similar species that don't have this association with dental cavities. That's the theory, at least. And scientists have developed a probe that can map our brains more efficiently. But what will this technology lead to? He says he's going to be able to do things like decode your thoughts without you giving him permission. I'm your host, Jason Palmer, one of the editors of our daily briefing app, Espresso. First on our agenda are the life-changing effects of technology. Many African countries are on the cusp of a tech-driven transformation, writes Jonathan Rosenthal in this week's paper. And it's making people healthier, wealthier and better educated. But will it be enough to help close the massive disparities in economic development? Jonathan, hi. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Um, and for writing this report, um, it kind of starts with this leapfrog idea, the degree to which mobile phones and the way they've spread in Africa kind of skips a bit that we've seen in the rest of the world in terms of not having you know, uh, the infrastructure and the um, broadband and so on. You think a wider leapfrog effort is underway? Firstly, mobile phones are the classic example of the leapfrog. And if one looks at countries like Nigeria, before mobile phones, you had a few hundred thousand landlines, uh, an inefficient state-owned uh, uh, telecommunications company, and you would have pretty much waited all your life to get a phone line. So that is the kind of classic example. There are a few other really great examples where one can see the potential for this kind of leapfrogging. And the next big one, I think, is in energy. If you look at the electricity supply, about two-thirds of Africans don't have access to reliable electricity. And that, that has huge consequences. It probably costs about 2% of GDP every year just to kind of run expensive generators and have intermittent power. It also has huge social consequences because uh, if you don't have power, you can't have a fridge. And if you don't have a fridge, it becomes difficult to store vaccines. And if you can't store your vaccines, it's difficult to vaccinate kids. So energy is a huge barrier on the development of, uh, of Africa. Now, if one looks at the old way of going about things, you would have said, you know, you build a whole bunch of power stations, a lot of them coal-fired power stations. You build this huge grid that goes out to everyone's house. Uh, you know, kind of like what we have in the rich world. The problem with that is it would cost about $63 billion a year to put in that infrastructure. It would still take, you know, another couple of decades. Yeah, you'd still be waiting most of the rest of your life for it. You would. And frankly, those resources just aren't there. And so you've been looking at some tech firms who are, are trying to, to bridge this gap without that huge sum of money or time. Yeah, exactly. So we've had this amazing confluence of technology and business model. And, and the technology is just solar panels have come down in cost. They're you know, a tenth as much as they were a few years ago. Batteries are getting cheaper. But these have now been put together in this kind of innovative business model that says – you can have a system that will provide lights and you know, enough power to charge your phone and run a television for about $250. Now, that may not sound like a huge amount of money to us, but $250 is beyond the reach of many people in Africa. And that's where the 
business model comes in. People have tied this in with mobile money and, and, and remote control cell phones. It'll get stuck on your roof. You'll pay a few dollars a week. If you don't pay for a week, it gets switched off. When you do pay again, it gets switched back on. And that is just able to kind of roll out to millions of households uh, in a very short space of time. Oh, this kind of puts paid to the, the criticism that you sometimes hear of, you know, what's the what's the bother? Why bother with, you know, doing high tech fixes when you don't have, for instance, electricity in, in a widespread way? You don't have passable roads in a lot of places. This seemed to suggest that you can get great gains without having to tackle all of those much bigger, much more systemic problems. In one sense, that's absolutely true. And, th- and this becomes the whole conundrum. And, and in fact, one of the reasons why, although we've been talking about leapfrogging, why I, I slightly back away from that phrase, because if one looks at something like drones for medical delivery, and, the, and these are now happening in Rwanda, going to happen in Tanzania, you're, you're able to save lives by delivering urgent kind of supplies of blood to remote clinics where women giving birth may be bleeding to death. So you're really able to save lives and use this technology in an incredibly powerful way. But at the same time, it doesn't alleviate the need to say that actually that muddy dirt track that connects you know, the village to the bigger city, without a road, you can't get your goods to market. So although tech can kind of ease some of the frictions and overcome some of the barriers, on its own, it, you know, you cannot just totally avoid having to build roads, fix your ports, and do all of the other hard stuff. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. What do you think about these technologies and their potential to help Africa overcome its longstanding barriers to development? Let us know. We're on Twitter at Economist Radio, and you can also reach us via emails to radio at economist.com. Next up, we welcome Natasha Loader to the studio. Hey, how are you doing? Good. How are you? How's your week going? I'm absolutely fine. And what are you looking into this week? Ah, microbiomes. Our microbiome, the bugs that live in us and on us, has become of great scientific interest recently. Natasha writes this week that they aren't just swimming around and digesting lettuce. They're doing much, much more. A lack of some microbes have been linked to our mental health, obesity, MS, diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, autism, to name just a few. And so a spate of firms are wondering whether you could offer bugs as drugs. Natasha, first of all, I have to get this resolved. Microbiome, microbiome. What do you say? I've always said uh, microbiome, which is incorrect. I've been told it's uh, microbiome. Right. I will continue to say microbiome (laughs) smugly. We've heard a lot in recent years about fecal transplants, right? But Mm, this is not... Yummy. Yeah. I mean, it sounds terrible, but luckily it's at least helpful. But it's not at all a new idea, is it? So the idea of using poo as a a health substance really can be traced back 1,700 years ago to China. They called it yellow soup. It was a treatment for diarrhea and some kind of liquid suspension was made of essentially faecal matter. Warm camel poo has been used for dysentery. In modern times, this sort of interest in this revived because after patients had been treated with a lot of antibiotics, they were finding that a particularly nasty uh, bacteria called Clostridium difficile uh, would form these overgrowths inside the gut and they were resistant to treatment with antibiotics and causing you know, some really severe problems. And they found that actually it was these transplants of you know, fecal microbes from the healthy guts of other people would allow a healthy gut flora to reestablish itself and push out the bacteria who had um, taken residence in your gut. It's really from that that a lot of the modern interest in microbiome sciences have come about. Um, And so this is, as I've heard it described, a matter of actually transplanting material from the lower end of the gut to the lower end of a gut. 
Yeah, the to way put it, to put it gently, the way it's mostly done is by creating a liquid suspension of poo, and um, it can then be introduced from either end of the body. You can introduce it from the rectum or orally, but they put it in a they put it straight into your stomach. You don't have to swallow it. Um, so that's how it's been done. There are some people who are trying to freeze dry the poo, if you like, and encapsulate it, something that's become colloquially known as the crapsule, um, which is a, a sort of rather amusing uh, uh, reference to the contents of the uh, pill. <laughs> It seems that there is so much claimed promise around this microbiome stuff. Are we setting ourselves up for a fall here? I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of the Human Genome Project where the idea was that, you know, once you get the recipe for humans, we can fix all of our problems. And that's proving very fraught. Do you think we're kind of setting off on a similar path here? Yeah, I th- I think that's quite an insightful comment, actually, because we found lots of correlations between the uh, microbiome and different diseases. And we all know correlation does not equal causation. And just because say, you find in autistic children, they have a different microbiome, it doesn't tell you necessarily whether it's the gut bacteria themselves that's helping to drive the disease, or perhaps there's something else about autism that's allowing different bacteria to colonize. All that said, the kinds of associations that we're turning up are developing really exciting new leads in disorders and diseases that we've kind of really not been making a great deal of progress on. Inflammatory diseases in general, but also things like uh, multiple sclerosis, you know, it's a really tricky problem to solve. And we've known for years that a very healthy diet has a great effect on the progress of multiple sclerosis, of certain types of multiple sclerosis. So that tied with our knowledge that actually, you know, there is a gut connection as well, gives you something really kind of profound to start working on if you're a drug firm or, or even if you're a patient and you just want to sort of improve your quality of life. Well, and there are simpler cases, right? It isn't always the multifarious things. One of the more interesting things, I think, in, in your report is about the bug that causes cavities, that causes tooth rot. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Streptococcus mutans, it's not totally cut and dried, but there is this school of thought that a particular microbe is the one that's mainly responsible for dental cavities. And there's a currently a firm called C3J that's trying to target that specific bug in the oral cavity. It will actually leave a sort of vacant ecological niche in the mouth, which will be filled by very similar species that don't have this association with dental cavities. That's the theory, at least, and obviously will remain to be seen when this is tested. And maybe one day when I smile because of this bug, it's going to sound like this. (laughs) Uh, Nice sound effect. (laughs) Finally, we travel upwards just a little bit from your teeth and into your brain. There are 86 billion nerve cells up there, and these neurons are all connected together via synapses. With every thought, and sometimes without them, electricity charges through them. Neuroscientists have long struggled to measure this activity. They lack temporal precision or spatial resolution. Help, though, might be on the horizon. Isn't that right, Hal? That is right. There is a new probe in town called NeuroPixels. Hal Hodson is our technology correspondent, and he's been looking into this for The Economist. Hal, what, what is this thing? What's it do? What's it look like? How's it work? This thing is a basically a really weird-shaped computer chip. It is the width of a human hair and about a centimeter long. 
And etched on the surface of this sort of spaghetti strand of a thing are little sensors that can measure the electrical profile of neurons once it is jammed into the brain of, say, a rat or a mouse, or potentially in future a human. This sounds like not such a hot idea. Well, as one of the researchers, Dr. Tim Harris, who is leading the project, said to me, this is a fundamentally bad idea. We're poking holes in brains here, Hal. So he's not wrong. But the reason that you do this is to ultimately help a patient who, say, is paraplegic. And you need to profile a certain region of their brain to allow them to operate, say, a robotic arm with that bit of their brain. With mice and rats, the reason that you're doing it is to try and understand the brain because we really don't. Um, in general. And so the reason that this thing is useful is that it lets you measure what the neurons are doing in there. And yes, it's a bad idea to poke holes in brains, which is why you try and make it as thin as possible, which is one of the things these guys are doing. Right. But it's not getting uh, as, as fancy as this thing is. It's not getting a picture of the whole brain. It's still a local thing, right? It's an extremely local thing. Pictures of the whole brain would require sensing every single neuron in the brain. And that would require feathering your brain with these spaghetti strands, which is what will happen. Uh, Dr. Harris says that people have already put like 20 of these things into the brains of rats and mice. So you've got this really weird picture of like a, a mouse or a rat with a bunch of knitting needles sticking out of its skull. But the only way we have of taking a full brain picture at the moment is sort of very loosey-goosey kind of fMRI stuff that doesn't really tell you that much about what is actually happening. But, okay, so how many neurons then can, can one watch with this NeuroPixel thing? You can watch with one strand of this NeuroPixels device, you can watch about 700 neurons doing their thing in a line along the spaghetti strand. You can plug more in, and I think that one of the places that they've been trialing it in Switzerland has done about 1,000 neurons simultaneously, which is way more than we've been able to do before. Um, right, but the number is still, I mean, it's still a very serious numbers game, right? We start with the billions, and you're still talking in the hundreds. Yeah, again, as Dr. Harris said to me, the current stage with this kind of neuroscience is like trying to figure out how global society works by polling a bunch of people on the underground in London. You know, that would be a pretty ridiculous thing to try and do. But then again, you might be able to figure out some stuff like how often are humans hungry? You might be able to find that out by asking people in an underground carriage and it would be fairly applicable to the rest of the planet. Obviously, the analogy falls down. Humans are not neurons. But it's that kind of scale and it's a big, big problem. Let's take this then to its its logical conclusion. What does the long-term picture of this technology look like? Well, uh, another researcher I spoke to called Conrad Cording told me that what he wants is a million neurons uh, to be accessible via this technology. And once he has a million neurons, he says he's going to be able to do things like decode your thoughts without you giving him permission. With just a million? Yeah, with a million. Um, he says that a million will let him do things like allow people to control very advanced robots very smoothly. So currently it's, I don't know if you've seen the videos of, you know, the people feeding themselves with robotic arms, but it's pretty, it's very slow. Obviously it's better than not being able to move at all, but it's extremely slow and doesn't work very well. And he says that a million neurons is kind of like the holy grail of uh, the kind of stuff you need to make this really useful for medical applications. Right, Al, thank you very much. Cheers, Jason. Well, that's it for Babbage this week. If you could give us a review on your podcasting app, we'd appreciate it. It'll give us a boost and help spread the word about Babbage. I'm Jason Palmer. Thanks very much for listening. In London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.